Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, we have quite a bit of stuff to talk about tonight. Rolling Stone interview, Bruce on Fallon. We're still talking only the strong survive. So a lot to cover. <laughs> yes, there is. But uh, I think the Rolling Stone interview is what we were most interested in, especially when he talked about future releases, especially our favorite topic tracks too, and, and any other archival releases. And uh, let's let's start there. Do you want to start with the tickets or do you want to start with tracks too? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously we want to talk about tracks too, but let's start with the tickets because it has gotten a huge amount of attention. I just saw a couple of other media articles about it and it's continuation of the same. Now, I think before we get into it, my opinion on this is we expressed very vehemently our thoughts on what happened back in July. And I just think at some point we're going to have to move forward from just talking about the nature of the ticket sales, the pricing and all of that. I understand people are very frustrated. The man is a musician. We're all in this together because we love his music and Soon he's going to be playing shows. And when I'm standing there, I I don't want to be thinking about these issues, as annoying as some of them are. Yeah, the way I looked at it, his his quotes in Rolling Stone, just just as the 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 scars over the previous wounds that were uh, inflicted, shall we say, in late July, early August, just as that scarred over, he had to go and say what he said, and then we he just ripped it off again and inflicting all the pain. All, all over again. But you're right. We do have to move on. Nothing's really going to change. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see what the ticket sale situation will be for the stadium shows. I assume they'll be they'll be announced sometime early in the year. But uh, yeah, we just basically have to, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but suck it up. And this is how it's going to be. You can go or you, you cannot go. And I'm if I sound like a dick, I, I, I apologize. But this is what he's doing. And Nothing's going to change. Now, I got to say, I think in his defense, the comment everyone is dwelling on, clearly he shouldn't have put it that way, but I don't think he meant it as it sounded and it just landed poorly, especially when you consider how inflamed things are. Uh, One of the things that he said that the artist deserves to be the one making the money off their shows, which is something we discussed a bunch of times on this show before the ticket sale even happened. Live Nation came up with a plan so that the artists themselves get the money and not random people on the secondary market. Uh, I think it's hard to argue with that. If Bruce sells a ticket for $200 and Joe Blow buys a ticket and then sells it for $800, I I don't see how that's right. So here's what he said verbatim. Ticket buying has gotten very confusing, not just for the fans, but for the artists also. And the bottom line is that most of our tickets are totally affordable. They're in that affordable range. We have those tickets that are going to go for the higher price somewhere anyway. The ticket broker or someone is going to be taking that money. I'm going, hey, why shouldn't that money go to the guys that are up there sweating three hours a night for it? And let's stop right there. Again, I can't take issue with anything he said there. Did you? No, not at all. Except I will say that what I was thinking the other day was that the number of tickets that the scalpers and the brokers get was a very was a subset of what was sold. Whereas at this point, the way they did the sales, it's like all those tickets ended up in that what would have been previously just the broker price range. Right. Well, let's also talk about his use of the word affordable. <laughs> yeah. Because this is a little confusing. If we look at the base prices of the tickets, I know they've gone up. Some people are comparing apples and oranges. You cannot compare the old GAs, which were a lottery ticket, to a guaranteed pit ticket. Even though the pit ticket costs more, in my opinion, it's got far greater value. The side seats have gone up probably by a factor of two. But in the marketplace as it stands now, I think his base prices are in line with other people. And I don't know if I would use the word affordable, but I do think the prices are fair. What do you think? 
Well, first off, I feel like the base prices that you're talking about weren't exactly made clear at the beginning of the on sales. I, That's true. I feel like the only actual pricing chart that I saw was from Philadelphia, which was a non-Ticketmaster sale. And they were tiered appropriately to, to my eyes. And this, But the second thing is that I feel like unless you got in in the first three minutes, you were not getting those prices. That's correct. And I think that's part of the problem here is that unless you got extremely lucky, you were getting screwed. You were paying you were paying scalper prices regardless at that point. And and of course now you got hundreds and hundreds of tickets on the on Ticketmaster's resale sites and for each show and they're just just they're just out of whack at this point, just to say the least. Which of course was his point that you're going to be paying scalper prices anyway if you don't get tickets in the early minutes of an on sale. And to a certain extent he's right there. I think where it starts to go wrong. The use of the word affordable, especially as we know what happened with the dynamic pricing, which went way out of control, irrationally so. We've been over this. I think we did two whole episodes <laughs> about it. There's no defending what took place on the first two or three days of the on sales. It was a disaster. The headlines, the publicity, it all speaks for itself at this point, And that's why he's being asked about it. I don't know if he fully understands what people went through in July when they were going in. And on that first day for Tampa, we were seeing $4,000 tickets on the floor. Maybe he just doesn't fully get it. You'd think he'd know the headlines because they were all over the place. <laughs> yeah, those $5,000 Tampa tickets got, got pretty famous. And those were ones that, that even I saw. And I saw them with my own eyes and they were... Ticketmaster platinum tickets, five thousand dollars each, first row behind the pit, and that was just that was jaw dropping. I was expecting, I was expecting an increase in price. I wasn't expecting that, which is what twenty times, thirty times what we paid on the River Tour. It was crazy, and there's just no justification for those prices. You wouldn't get that price on the secondary market. We went over this many times, 40th row in Tampa is not selling for $4,000. It's just an impossibility. <laughs> That's very true. And I, and I think it's regarding the, the resales now, whether it's a Ticketmaster or Platinum ticket, there are still a bunch of those out there for, I guess, no, I shouldn't say a bunch, but they're out there for a few shows. But I do believe that the, the resales are going to come down in price, you know, maybe not until three days before the show, but no one's no one's going to be $5,000 or bust for, for any ticket on this tour. Definitely not. Although I will say, as you and I have discussed privately, I am a little surprised by how much the pricing has endured. I've been watching pretty closely both on Ticketmaster and the secondary sites. And when prime seating, including the GA, falls to a certain price, it seems like it's selling. The other day, checking out Portland, GAs were listed for $942 as platinum tickets for a while, and then they dropped the price a little bit to below $900, and, and they were gone. Right now, if you look at Ticketmaster for Portland, the only GAs are secondary market tickets way above that price. So I think we're just going to have to see how this plays out. Now, I do want to get back to his final comment, because, and I'll read it verbatim again, it created an opportunity for that to occur. And so at that point, we went for it. I know it was unpopular with some fans, but if there's any complaints on the way out, you can have your money back. Now, yeah. uh, I, I never, that I, did not land properly. <laughs> I, I don't think he, I think what he meant there was we're going to come out and we are going to kick your ass and nobody's going to have any complaints no matter what they paid. And no doubt that's what he believes in his head. And we know he's probably going to deliver on that. However, the way it came, <laughs> considering how inflamed people are, probably not the way it should have been said. Well, at, at best, it's tone deaf. So, yeah, I agree with you. He, he looks at it. He's going to come out there. He's going to take the stage in Tampa and Atlanta and every other show through Prudential and then on to Europe. He's going to kick ass for those three to four hours he's on stage. And... And yeah, he thinks he's going to deliver your your money's worth. Now, 
Now, the question is, if I spent $2,000 on a ticket, and my, so my wife and I can go, we have a, that's a $5,000 evening, as I, as I said in August, if I'm not writing a set list, I'm not getting my money's worth. So that is something that, uh, yeah, maybe he should have kept something like that in mind. See, the problem with a comment like that is if anyone actually does seek to get their money back, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> so it just, considering how raw the situation is, I, I think it could have been put more artfully. I, I don't myself understand why. And let's give Andy Green credit because we didn't mention his name. That's who conducted the interview for Rolling Stone. Fantastic interview. I don't know why he wasn't a little bit more ready for that. And yeah. just to say the answer about that the money should come to us. And we understand that some fans have been negatively impacted. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, uh, I'm sorry that that's the case. And there's going to be a lot more tickets that come on sale when we play massive stadiums it, during the summer and fall. That I think people would have been like, okay, we, we get it. But the whole sort of bravado, which, again, we know he believes that in his head because that's who he is and that's why he's the best that he, that's really ever been in rock and roll. He has that amount of ego and bravado, but that was not really the moment to, to flash it when people are just so desperate to get answers on this topic and... 90% of the people, that's not what they wanted to hear. No, I, I'm very surprised that he didn't have more of a of a packed answer. I mean, as you just said, he he should have worked with uh, his PR people. I know they've got a good firm in Shorefire. They could have come up with some wording that he could have maybe not have to read it verbatim in, in this interview, but certainly have an idea, a framework of what he should be saying and certain phrases he should throw in. And but I think they just dropped the ball on this one, just like they did. They did just like they did when Landau when Landau came out and spoke to the New York Times in, in August. The thing is, there was a promotional purpose to it. Like I just said about he's got to sell stadium tickets. Why not say? I understand people are upset. This is a limited run. It's arenas. We're doing one night per city in all but one case. And there's going to be tons more tickets and they're going to be cheaper. And the basic law of supply and demand means that they're not going to be anywhere near as expensive anywhere. So to me, it was a missed opportunity that they didn't mention the stadium tour. And for those of you who are upset, don't worry, I'm coming back and playing a large number of shows where people are going to see those shows because we know everyone who wants to see one of these stadium shows is going to get a ticket. You can't tell me otherwise. No, even at MetLife and at the last or, or giant stadium, I mean, going back to 2008 there, I think there's been one show that was, that might've been a tough ticket. That was the last show in, in 2008, but 2009, 2012, even 16, there, yeah, tickets were tickets were around. You might have had to sit in the three hundreds, but the, you you were in the door. Which is at this point in arenas, three hundred dollars for an upper deck is just that's just not feasible. It's a lot, and there's no denying it. And I think he attempted in some ways to take ownership of it because they are, to their credit, and land out the same thing. They're not trying to push it on anyone else. He said, we set the prices. Mm -hmm. This is why we set the prices. But it was just that once he said that, calling the tickets affordable, which you can debate on the base price. I know there's a lot of debate over that, whether the base prices are affordable. I I personally think they're fair. But the dynamic pricing was clearly not affordable, nor was it rational. So I don't want to keep talking about this over and over again. It is the biggest issue, I think, in front of the fan base right now. So it's hard to avoid it. Right. Now, one, before we do drop it, I have one more, one more comment. Is that if they announce the stadium shows before the end of the arena tour, is that going to force the arena prices down a bit? I don't know. And the one thing that nobody knows right now is – how many tickets are still unsold in these arena shows? Because as we talked about, even before the sales happened, with the platinum tickets these days, they generally hold tickets to release at regular intervals, trying to maximize revenue for each ticket. Harry Styles at the Garden, where he played 15 nights, I was watching that because, as you know, I wanted to get tickets for my niece. His niece. Wink, wink. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> stop that. <laughs> yeah, for his niece, right, Al. Okay, go on. I I wasn't even in New York at the time, and let me just say I would see Harry Styles for sure. So, but do you have but do you have this, your Swift tickets for Sophie Stadium? I wish I did. That's a whole separate issue. As I spent plenty of time again, really for my niece for New York, but I would go see Taylor in a heartbeat if I had a ticket. I do not at the moment. Yeah, she's a she's a tremendous artist. I'm not a huge fan, but I have a total respect for her, and I just took this way off topic. So go, go back. Out. But getting getting back to the tickets, Harry Styles in the weeks leading up to the 15 Garden shows, many many tickets came out. Now they were all platinum. They actually were priced lower than the original platinum tickets. If you wanted a ticket and you were willing to spend five hundred dollars, and they were actually really the good seats you could get a ticket. So we're going to have to see how this plays out. I, I do not believe that these shows are sold out based on how the tickets are sold these days. I think there's going to be plenty of tickets coming into the system. It's only late November right now. The tour doesn't even start till February 1st. There are shows that are still ha- five and a half months away. It, the ones that are towards the end, which are the hottest shows because they're in New York. So I think we just have to sit tight and, Let's see how this plays out, and hopefully this is just going to blow over and we can focus on the music. I I really think at this point he should just not answer if anyone asks him because so far their attempts to explain it have not made the fan base happy. Well, he can't not answer. I mean, answer these questions if he's in an interview. So he needs to come up with maybe a better response. Well, he could say, hey, I already answered that question. I was asked it a month ago and just leave it at that. I don't know. But certainly they have to be aware of themselves that this is not helping the situation. And they've got to want it to pass because who wouldn't want this to pass? Uh, First of all, it's bad publicity. And secondly, it's just not fun for anyone. Uh, this is supposed to be about the music. Right. Let's rock, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, as you said, once they once we hit February 1 and the shows start, I think a lot of these stories will be in, in the rearview mirror, especially if, as you're hoping and suggesting, that more affordable or at least more appropriately priced tickets are do come out of the Ticketmaster system. The last thing we'll say on this is it's unfortunate. He is right in a way that in terms of the industry changes, there's only going to be such a level that the tickets are going to fall to in the arenas. Now, with the stadiums, I think there's going to be tickets in most of the markets. You'll get a ticket. uh, They'll be giving tickets away in, in certain markets. And with the arenas, people are just going to have to make a decision. Is it worth it for me to see these shows especially knowing that there's going to be additional shows later on, which will be much easier to get tickets to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Supply and demand. That's why I ask if tickets go on sale for the stadium tour, will prices for the arena shows go down? But but that's a question that has yet to be answered. Yes. And now let's talk tracks too, which we're going to have a lot more fun with. <laughs> Just a bit. Again, it's, only, it's only our favorite topic for four years now. Giving credit to Andy Green, who Absolutely. got great info out of Bruce here. He asked him, is there a Tracks 2 box set? And Bruce said, quote, yes, I have a box set of five unreleased albums that are basically post-1988, end quote. Now, of course, that's music to our ears. Bruce (laughs) went on to say that it's coming in the near future and stressed near. Well, that's very, very great to hear finally. Um, But it's just interesting what his definition of near is, and that's going to be something... Hoping uh, it means by next next November, but we'll see. This show, it, I think, is the biggest cheerleader for tracks, too, <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Uh, this is tracking very closely with information we have discussed before uh, that we have heard and others have heard. There have been these mythical lost albums, one of which we believe is the Daytime Jode album that Brian Hyatt talked about with us and wrote about in his book, and four others which are going to be totally fresh and new and uh, just tremendously exciting once we finally get our hands on these. It it seems at this point, like, (laughs) is that they ever going to come? But he he is indicating for sure it is. Yeah. What's interesting, what I find interesting about that is that if they're slotting the second 
covers album to come out, say, in March, and I think that was the rumored window at some point somewhere. When would the, when would tracks two come out? And I guess if we're lucky, it would it would coincide with the start of the U.S. Stadium tour, and and maybe at most it would come out a year from now in November of twenty three, as you know, as per usual for their holiday boxes. But yeah, the sooner the better. We're ready. Since he says it's post eighty eight, I'm going to assume that there's very little E Street Band material in here. Well, and I don't think it would be something that would be played on the tour. So I don't know if it matters when actually they release it in relation to the tour. The one thing that he also says in here is that the second volume of covers is only about seventy five percent done. Now he's about to start a massive tour. I don't know. Is the March date really going to be kept Uh, using his language near future? I don't know what that means to him. Uh, (laughs) We've been through this. Western stars was promised, I think about 16 times over the years before we finally got it. But my reading of near future is imminent. (laughs) Well, yeah, I would love to have the, have tracks to come out and to coincide with the start of the U S tour and, you know, two or two and a half to three months, but I'm not, it seems like they're more. I mean, if he's actually working on this, this uh, covers volume two, I'm not holding my breath. But hey, the sooner the better. And I would love to be surprised. And when it actually comes out, and I get my hands on a copy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tweet out a picture of me holding it, going, "My precious." But anyway, look, 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 look ahead to that. <laughs> Now, the other thing is, and Andy Green, well prepped again for this interview, asked him about the Drum Loop album, which I believe most fans refer to as the hip hop album. And what Bruce said was, he first of all, he said it was a bit weird, but he also said that first thing we're putting out is the series of albums. It's going to be interesting to see the fan response because I love them all. That was when he gave the answer about near future. He appears to heavily imply that the Drum Loop album is not one of the five records in this box set of unreleased material. Is that how you read that? I don't know. I kind of read it as there's going to be two boxes of these lost albums. Uh, first off, going back to what we heard, we heard it was double the you know B10 disc, and and to have only to have him mention say five albums, and I'm wondering if there's going to be a volume one and a volume two. Um, but I was thinking that since he specifically mentioned post eighty eight, that it would start off with that with that ninety four relationship or hip hop album, and it would include, as you said, the daytime album from the Jode era. And so I I would be surprised if the Drum Loop album, the ninety four album, is not in this first volume. I'm confused. Is the Drum Loop album, the hip hop album, also the relationship album? I thought they were different. I, th- I always thought they were the same because they were recorded in that same time span. I mean, the 90, 94 album was shelved at the last minute in, in, at the end of 94. And I don't remember whether there was a second second album at that time. I thought it was just that one. And I always kind of put the two together. But maybe they are different. Maybe they are two entirely different different projects. I would. This is why we want to hear it, so we can be uh, we, we can know for sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. The album we refer to as a relationship album, we know had Secret Garden on it, and we also believe Back in Your Arms was on that, and also we know Waiting on the End of the World was on that. I don't see those songs being quote unquote hip hop. Do you? <laughs> That's true. So yeah, I, maybe I'm wrong. That's how I always interpret it. And I would love to be proven wrong if it's two albums or if it's, if it's just one, I just want to hear it. And yeah, the title of that album was going to be waiting on the end of the world. So see, I always took it as the hip hop record was somehow tied to some material that maybe surrounded streets of Philadelphia, which yes, that, but that was, but that's also all the the same time frame. I know, but that doesn't mean there weren't two records. <laughs> that's true. I think missing was obviously part of the of the of the drum loop album, and I don't know where, where where does Father's Day come in between heaven and heaven and hell or heaven and earth? What's the name of that one? And then blind spot. So I don't know where where those titles fall in 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 this situation. Okay, so let's see if we can think this through. One of the albums may be the relationship album. I really think that has to be in there. We'll see if I'm correct. Well, do, you, the, do you mean have, do you mean the Scrap '94 album, or do you mean Streets of Philadelphia sessions? The, kind stra- of? 
the scrap 94 record that was recorded with Tommy Sims and Shane and, and other people from the 92, 93 band. Okay. Okay. See, and I think they were also involved in the, uh, in the hip hop album, but we'll, we'll have to find out because isn't Tommy Sims on streets of Philly? I'm not, I believe so. I'm not a hundred percent sure. We'd have to go back and check the crowd. Right. Tommy Sims was also on gypsy woman, which was from the exact same time yeah. frame. All right. Okay. Go on. So, let's say the relationship record is one. Mm-hmm. We know the 95 daytime record mm-hmm. is likely another, right? Right. Absolutely. And then, he says post 88. So that would seem to imply the country sessions from tunnel of love are not included. That's how I read it. Now he may, he may look at it differently and, and say that those sessions were finished up later on, but that's a big question mark. And it would be kind of disappointing if none of those sessions ever, ever saw the light of day, so to speak. We have a record that probably is somehow tied directly to or adjacent Western stars. Absolutely. Would you say that's the case? Absolutely. There are like a bunch of more songs recorded for that. Wasn't that Gary Malabar's thing? That little Facebook yes. posting in four, almost four years ago? Well, there's also the so-called gospel record that was somehow tangential at the time to the West Western stars and then... Wrecking Ball, those are all sort of also, I think, mixed together, not necessarily as projects, but in terms of time frame. Yes, absolutely. Now, my question is, are they go- would they really release a five-disc box set of Lost Albums and not have any, any E Street on it? And so that would lead me to hope or believe that the 2001 sessions with the from March would be included. And there's we know there's about eight songs there. Um, what are they? Do you know? Yes. I mean, uh, we can another thin, another thin yeah, line, another thin line, code of silence. I'm not sleeping idiots delight. And then you got the four new songs from the tour further on up the road, land of hope and dreams, American skin, and then my city of ruins. So I guess only three new songs from the tour plus city of ruins. I guess that could make an unreleased record. It, it, that's not what I would have thought in the way he's talking about as an unreleased record, especially since so much of that material went on to be placed elsewhere. Well, only, but we'll have to see. only like the, only the E street stuff, the well further, I guess. Yeah. All you're right. The non Grzecki co-writes all ended up released elsewhere, but we do have the, the four Grzecki co-writes and, you know, I want to hear another thin line in Code of Silence, that's for sure. And I'm Not Sleeping is a pretty cool song. I do want to point out one other quote that he said in relation to this. He said, people look at my work in the 90s and they go, the 90s wasn't a great decade for Bruce. He was kind of doing this and that and he wasn't in the E Street Band. I actually made a lot of music during that period of time. I actually made albums for one reason or another. The timing wasn't right and I didn't put them out. So he doesn't seem to imply there that it's going to be a lot of stuff from the nineties. Now of the stuff we just named only two of the things for sure were from the nineties. It appears there may be more. Yeah. I think he was doing more recording in 98 in addition to the overdubs on, on tracks. So I think he, I think that could be a possibility. There could be a batch of songs from there. And I don't know what we want to call. Well, we do know that the 1997 material that we kind of refer to as Joe two, most of that in, ended up on Devils and Dust. So, but there could be additional material there. Yeah, that's true too. And I, I just I can't stress this enough. I hope he stops teasing us and puts this damn thing out already. I can't take much more of it. Exactly. But he but also in that same same section of the interview, he talks about there was some early stuff with the band, and so there might be other lost albums or at least more outtakes from, from the seventies and, and early eighties or first part of the eighties. So I'm, you know, I want to hear it all. Uh, I want to hear new, new music from Bruce Springsteen, whether he, he wrote it yesterday or wrote it 30 years ago. And I'm, I'm ready. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. 
Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Well, the most shocking thing that apparently we're not going to be hearing, <laughs> according to Bruce in this interview, he was asked about the Born in the USA box set. Now, I we had talked about it on the show many times that our information was that they had never really started work on such a box set, but we always assumed <laughs> 100% that there would be a box set. They just hadn't really started work on it yet. He says there's not going to be one because there's not enough material to put in such a box set. And quite frankly, uh, you know, sometimes I, it is probably true that we know more about what's going on in, in his vault than he does, because I really don't know what he's talking about there. There is a ton of material, some of which we've already heard that's amazing and other stuff that we have not heard that has never been released from the Born in USA sessions. And this stuff has to get out there, not to mention alternates to the final versions of which there are many that have artistic merit. I know he doesn't like alternates a lot of times, but in this case, for some of his biggest tracks, most importantly, Born in the USA, that stuff should be out there for artistic and historical reference. Well, you know, I totally agree with you. And, and yeah, it's very surprising that they would do a box set for Born to Run, Darkness in the River, and then not do one for his biggest album. It, that's, that's somewhat mind-blowing. And and as you said, there's he recorded 80 songs or approximately 80 songs uh, between, between the Nebraska and USA sessions. They've released, I guess if you include Nebraska, there's about 40, 40 songs so that have been released. So that leaves another 40. And you're going to tell me that None of those forty are are worthy of release. That's that's you're right. That's that's mind blowing. It's just I can't believe that. I would my thinking was it would be at least two disc of outtakes similar to to the darkness box, two disc of outtakes we've never heard before. Not just consolidating all the released outtakes thus far, like like the river did, the river box did. It's just it's mind blowing. And then and then you got you're not going to release a show from your biggest tour. In, in a video visual format, that's just, I, I don't understand that at all. I mean, Sony is going to have to come in and say, listen, Bruce, you got to do this. But at the, at the same time, every, every year that every year, the physical media market, which is what such a box would, would most likely be is, is growing smaller and smaller. He said, and I quote, the born in USA stuff we have either isn't very good or there isn't any of it. Now, neither part of that quote makes much sense. I don't know if 
we associate stuff with the Born in the USA sessions that maybe he doesn't. But how would protection be anything other than part of the Born in the USA sessions? Drop on down and cover me. I mean, these are great songs. To say that they're not worthy of release is just, it's, it's a shame for one thing if they're never going to come out. And then you get to the Hollywood Hills demos the Klansmen, One Love, there's so much great material in there. Is it possible he doesn't attribute that stuff to Born in the USA? It's very possible. It's very possible. And he needs to be educated. <laughs> he needs to be educated on that fact that that stuff is very important. I mean, we, if you look at the proposed track listings on, on Bruce Bass, all the B-sides were, were from those 83 sessions. This was a little girl and Betty Jean, the delivery man, and the Unsatisfied Heart orig- originates from there. Oh, yeah. that's We can't forget yeah, that I, one. That's- I was surprised you, you you didn't mention it there at first, but... But yeah, that stuff. I mean, that's a whole album. That's that's an album right there. Maybe that'll appear on tracks too, and we won't uh, we won't get uh, that stuff in the in the USA box. But maybe won't maybe we won't get a USA box, and that'll be that. The other thing I thought was strange about it was the River Box came out. Now there's no question the best River outtakes were on tracks. In fact, they really scraped the bottom of the barrel, I think, to get the River Box out. So if they did it for that, it really doesn't make a lot of sense that you would say the same thing. The Born in the USA box would include the songs from tracks as they did on the River Box. And then there's all this other stuff, not to mention, as we've heard recently, Toby Scott's various versions of Born in the USA. I, I, I'm just stunned by his opinion on that. How is that stuff not artistically worthy of being released. Uh, Born in the USA is such an important song. What we heard from Toby was absolutely fascinating. Oh, absolutely. And, but I can actually, I kind of see Bruce's point there is is that the evolution of the song to him may not be as important as, as the final final product, but there's, there's a lot of songs that were done. Not a lot, but there were child bride, downbound train, pink Cadillac. All those were done acoustic, all those should be released as part of some kind of some kind of set, and then you have the the electric Nebraska stuff, which even if they went in and re-recorded now, or even if they really aren't that different than what he did on the subsequent tour, that's fine. I still want to hear it. I want to hear the studio versions of Atlantic City and Open All Night, and I I can't imagine those don't exist, and I can't imagine them totally sucking. So there's no excuse for for those two not to come out. Yeah, th- very mysterious comments there. And, and you're right. Sony is, what else would they want put out? I'm sure they're happy when he puts out anything. And five unreleased albums is exciting, especially since they out, now own the catalog. But if you're looking for commercial viability, the, the biggest thing he has left in the canon is a Born in USA box. <laughs> and he, he's apparently not planning on releasing it. That is so bizarre. I, of all the things I thought he would say, oh, no, I'm not going to release that. I can't believe that this would be one of them. But, but hey, there's going to be a book about, about the Nebraska album, which uh, doesn't really thrill me. <laughs> I can't imagine anything in there that's going to be that would excite me as much as hearing Electric Nebraska would be. I think most fans would agree with you, and I hope whoever's in charge of it makes him some kind of playlist with some of these songs so that he can hear them. Because as we know, he said in the past, oh, I didn't remember that one until I heard it on E Street Radio. He may not be remembering some of the stuff and how good it is because it's fantastic. And it, it really it just sort of heartbreaking to think that we're actually never going to get protection or drop on down and cover me officially released. Oh, exactly. And and he said he, in, this, in the interview, he said he went back a couple of winters ago and listened to everything in the vaults. And I just can't imagine he would listen to protection and go, yeah, that's, that's not very good. Uh, that's just, I, I can't, I couldn't imagine that to happen, but that's, you know, weirder things have happened, especially as he's approaching this this end here. Why hold anything back? Just let it go, or is he, or is he really going to kind of limp to the end of his career with having, uh, you know, this ticket controversy, and then have well, what about all the outtakes, all the eighty songs you recorded during your most prolific writing period? Nah, I'm not going to release all the, all of them. Why not? Come on, Bruce. 
Meet Me in the City, which is a perfectly fine song, we had pretty much an entire tour built around that. It was the opening song for all of the American leg. It was the lead single off the box. Protection destroys <laughs> Meet Me in the City. Let, let's be clear about oh, this. Oh, Drop Down and Cover Me destroys it, too. Let's, I'll be honest about that, too. I, I have zero problem with them re-recording anything that for which they don't have complete takes of back from back in the day. Go ahead and let's let's work up a studio version of State Trooper circa 2023 or 2022. Just just do it. I, I wouldn't bother me in the slightest. Well, we know they have protection because we've all heard it. <laughs> yes, thank you to the Lost Masters releases for that one. That's that is for sure. That's that was the jewel to me of that in, of the all 20 some odd disc of that one. Seriously, that leak now is so much bigger if this stuff is not going to come out officially. The last thing I want to say is that he doesn't like the evolution uh, of the songs necessarily. It's That in and of itself is a bit strange because, as we know, Bob Dylan is his hero and the bootleg series boxes that Dylan did. I'm no Dylan expert, but I believe they have, and he's releasing one now for Time Out of Mind that has a lot of alternates. He has released, I think, multiple versions of the same song to sort of give insight into his artistic process. I, I, some of those boxes have like huge numbers of discs, don't they? Uh, I'm not a Dylan. I don't know anything about his releases except that he actually does them. So I don't know how many discs or what the sessions are or, or how many takes of each song. But but yeah, if there's significant differences, I, I want to hear them. He has released... You know, two alternates, stolen car, and and you can look from the same sessions. But well, what what exact what alternate takes from USA are you most interested in? The stuff we heard from Toby Scott just a few months ago. How cool was that? Oh, it was the, it was oh, it was very cool. But it was just one song. You're acting like there's like a whole treasure trove of, well, of that kind of stuff. Well, we well there it well there were alternate versions. If you want to include "Drop on Down" as an alternate to "Cover Me," uh, we know no, there's an alternate that's version. A separate, that's a separate song. That's <laughs> a totally okay, separate you song. Want to call it a separate song? I right, do. Well, I do. They're 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 related. Okay, thematically related. Okay. You've got "Glory Days" with the alternate verse. That's that's I've, that's an extra verse. That's not really an alternate take. But if you want to do that, okay, well, I'll, I'll throw and shut out the light with the extra verse about the heroin yeah. addict. So we, we can do it's, that. It's not, it's, not, it's not about the alternates of, of those songs that, again, they don't have the artistic and historical impact of Born in the USA. You could do a box set just on Born in the USA. <laughs> I'm talking about the song now. Yes, I know. Sure. I know. We could talk about every every arrangement that he did live and that would fill up a at least one disc probably two hell you and the, i could do a whole show on that, that. <laughs> i think we mentioned For that sure. i think we mentioned that yeah. in, in our usa episode last month tying in the historical evolution okay so you want to say glory days that's just an alternate with a different verse i get that but you've got to also bring the nebraska stuff yes. into okay. it right. because there's an evolution from nebraska to born in the usa it is to me, uh, which is why we're discussing this so long and why it's so shocking, the most interesting period of his career artistically where he went from those sessions that culminated in January 3, 1982, and winds up in 1984 releasing this behemoth album that is one of the largest albums in the history of rock and roll. Oh, I agree with you. The, the story, there is a, quite the story there. I, I, would just, I just thought you, you were mentioning... You know, something like like Dancing in the Dark with an extended coda or Bobby Jean with more sax. I, I didn't know what you were saying there. But, yes, if, if you want to talk about Electric Nebraska being alternate versions, and yeah, yeah, I want to hear that. I'm all for releasing that stuff. I understand it's not Bruce's thing, so it's not likely to happen. But I'd be thrilled if they put out 15 discs for board in the USA. I would listen to it at least once and probably more. <laughs> yeah oh me too me too entirely you know i mean we bought the lost masters and there were some disc on there that were just like restless nights 15 times in a row or something so i would be all for that kind of repetition as long as it was some kind of evolution so let's move on from the rolling stone interview and again kudos to andy green that was fabulous and 
I think the next thing to discuss tonight is Bruce on Jimmy Fallon. Now, you were there for one of the nights. Do you want to tell the audience what you experienced? Sure. Well, well, first off, he on the first night, Monday night, he did. He recorded two songs. One aired that night. One was saved for Wednesday. And then we went on Tuesday, and he did another two songs. So he only went to the studio twice, but he only sat down with, with Jimmy once on that, on that first night. And, yeah, it was uh, – See, I've been to these rec- these tapings now a, a few times, mostly 99% of the time with Bruce. But uh, you go in, it's pretty much, for the most part, these shows are live to tape, where they just do the show straight through and edit it later. And he came out, I mean, after he interviewed somebody else, I forget, oh, Jeremy Pope, an actor. He actually looked pretty good. And then Bruce came out, or he introduced Bruce's for the musical set, and he came out, and did the first song, which was Turn Back the Hands of Time. And then he said, yeah, we're going to do... Then we finished that. He said, yeah, we're going to do another song. And then actually, they took kind of a break. Jimmy came up and took some questions. I actually asked one, so that was kind of cool. And then they did a second one, which is obviously going to be aired on Thanksgiving night, where, because um, he talked about everybody doing a little rap at the end, talking about people uh, have enough, enough mashed potatoes and sweet potatoes and more thanksgiving theme stuff. And... To me, that that kind of jam at the end was was a lot of fun. It seemed like it finally brought out the life in in this material, and it was just so amazing to to see it come to life right right in front of me. It really was good stuff. I watched it on TV, and do I love you? I thought played a lot better live. Now he had a twenty piece band. <laughs> David Sanchez was in the band. Ron Aniello was tucked in the back. We have to get the names of the drummer and the bassist and give them credit. I'm going to look that up in a second. And they really did sound great together. Now, the implication, and Ron Aniello was on with our buddy Tom Cunningham on his show. Ron told Tom that they really only had about six hours together prior to the Tonight Show performances. To me, that made it sound like he may have been counting the day they filmed the four videos. Are you asking me? Cause and, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, that's my read of oh, it. Your rhetorical and question. They, okay. Yeah. And they did not have a lot of time together. Now they did sound really tight. My guess is those are the only four songs that band knows. <laughs> that's, that's probably the case. They, they shot videos for them. They obviously were doing more than just miming or, or, lip syncing in, in the video they were actually playing the song because they sounded they said they did sound phenomenal and they brought life to it and but yeah it sounds like they're on a very short schedule i can't imagine that they would have done that that rehearsal or recording sometime in what september and then not doing done anything until it's the tonight show that i just can't imagine them not running through it you know like sunday you're right they mu- sunday maybe meant six hours before Right, maybe he meant six hours before the Tonight Show. Yeah, like Friday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, they could they should have gotten together or could have gotten together, run through them again just to make sure everybody's there. Especially since Sanchez was not in the um, in, in the videos, and I don't think Andy Allo was uh, on guitar either. But I, I could be wrong on that. I I really didn't like the videos, and I paid very little attention to them. So giving credit where credit is due, the drummer was Zoe Brescher, and the bass player is. Rose Blanchet. We mentioned Sanctious Curtis King, who has, of course, played with Bruce many times, was up there, as were Stan Harrison, LaBamba, Barry Danielian, Kurt Rahm, and Ed Mannion. Interesting. Do we think that that is going to be the horn section in 2023? Well, it's interesting because I think Andy Green asked him about it, and uh, he said that, yeah, for the most part, it'll be those guys up there. Uh, he also kind of, I was also referring to the backup singers who were what, Lisa Lowell? Michelle Moore, and then two people whose names I don't remember, but apparently you have the list in front of you. I do, and that was Fonzie Thornton and Dennis Collins, and and they were both also on the record. It's going to be interesting to see if any of these new players wind up on on Bruce's tour next year. And, you know, we should also mention the two violinists who were part of this band because they did a great job. We should, and that was Francesca Dardani and the fabulous Katie Jacoby, who plays with The Who. If you've seen The Who recently, uh, she does an amazing job at the end of Bob O'Reilly, which is their normal show closer. She's just tremendous fun to watch. I'll be surprised if she's on Bruce's tour for work. For one thing, we expect Susie's going to be there. And for another, I believe The Who is doing tour dates next year. Okay. I was actually surprised, very surprised that Susie was not there. 
Uh, she wasn't in the video, nor was she at Fallon. So that was that was a mystery. But I assume she'll be on stage uh, come, come February one. Now, the second song they did the first night was Night Shift. We haven't discussed that yet. That was really quite something. And it it certainly gives you hope if he plays that on the tour that it's going to be a showstopper. Yeah, that was amazing what, what Dave Sanchez did at the end. And, and he and Bruce drew out the ending. It was just, like you said, it was just amazing. It was beautiful. That's not one I, I anticipate hearing on the tour, though. But I would love to be surprised. I kind of... If he does songs on on from this album on the tour, it's going to be the upbeat stuff. The you know, do I, do I love you and wish it would rain and stuff that's going to just kick ass and on on stage with the with the horns and the singers. The one thing I thought about do I love you, especially if it replaces something like shout. I don't see how you can bloat do I love you from three <laughs> minutes into say seven or eight. So that would be a huge positive right there because I think if you eliminate shout and you play Do I Love You in the Encores, that'll be a really charging type of song, and they'll probably go through it pretty quickly, and it will hopefully lead to some more adventure in the Encores, and uh, not to beat a dead horse, but certainly we hope Shout is retired. (laughs) Well, yeah, I kind of foresee some kind of, not foresee, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a medley of some of these songs, kind of like in the vein of the Detroit medley, where he just plays three or four in a row, just you know, pops them in, plays about half the song, and then goes on to the next. And that would be a great replacement uh, for, for Shout, to say the least. I don't want to step on our tour preview show, which we're certainly going to do in late January, but he did also mention that he might play one, a <laughs> single Western Star song. He said he wants it to be a rock tour, but that he was considering playing one Western star song. Now we did a poll on Twitter and Tucson train won pretty decisively as the song that should be played. If there's only one, I personally voted in our poll for Western stars, but I can also go with Tucson train. Okay. Well, I voted for Tucson train uh, just to sit, to stay in the mode for a rock show. And, but it still also has the main themes of the record of, coping with uh with running away and and I thought that would work best best in the show but I would love to hear Moonlight Motel or or the title track that's for sure I wouldn't I wouldn't uh kick him out of bed for eating crackers how about that I'm excited to hear anything from Western Stars and Letter to You <laughs> Yeah well Letter to You I'm very hopeful for and I'm looking look we want to hear that stuff too I I, right. just, I, I just hope that well <laughs> Next time we'll talk about it, or two two yeah. episodes from now. Okay. Well, let's move back to the record. We had Lauren Anki on last time. I thought the feedback on that episode was great. I was really pleased. Since we had that conversation with her, have you done any reevaluating of the record? Yeah, I've, I've been listening to it more, and I'm, I'm enjoying it more. I Wish It Would Rain is actually one of my favorite songs on the album, as well as uh, Western Union Man, still still good. So yeah, a little bit more. And then and now that since she mentioned the whole political aspect, I kind of wish there was more. There was more in in that direction beyond only the title track and 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 the closing one. Well, I think the purpose of the project, and uh, Bruce seemed to indicate this in some of the places he was talking about it. He was reintroducing this music to a new audience, and. This past week, I did. I went and did some reading on Gamble and Huff, who I did not know anything about, and very fascinating to read about their label, Philadelphia International Records, and all the great records that these guys put out, including Expressway to Your Heart, which Bruce played, I believe, at the Nassau Coliseum show, right? In 2009, right. Yeah. Uh, he, they put out stuff by Jerry Butler, who Bruce is obviously covering on this record. So there's a whole broad history here. And what I find interesting that he's done here, especially for me learning about it, he is bringing these African-American artists to the forefront. You know, there's also been some debate. Is there any cultural misappropriation here? And I just think that's way <laughs> off base because... He's doing the exact opposite. He's bringing to his audience, including us, who isn't familiar with this material, 
and saying, this is what happened. And this is, these guys put out these songs and I want you to hear them and, and to think about them. Now, could he have put out a playlist and said, Hey, here are some soul songs I want you guys to listen to. I think that's a lot different for the Springsteen fan base than him actually putting out music of his own. Don't you? Oh, definitely. And uh, in the history of appropriation of, of white culture, stealing from African-American culture, this is one example where, where Bruce is giving credit to, the, to these artists. He's saying, listen, these guys are great. In addition to these songs, you should check out their, their other stuff. And he's really paying homage and trying to bring them to a new audience, as you said, where else, whereas in, in previous times, they're just, it's just white artists stealing from, from the originals uh, done by, by the African-American artists. And, and that's ultimately what I'm going to take away from this. I don't think it's a major piece of work. Uh, we discussed this the last time, but not everything has to be. Uh, you know, there's been a debate also among the fan base, I think. Is it worthy of being put out? I would say anything that Bruce wants to put out is worthy of being put out because, first of all, he is the artist. And secondly, the as cliched as I think it is, especially in light of certain circumstances in recent months, but the conversation that has been going on between him and his fan base, this is all a part of it. And anything that he wants to put out there, I, I think is adding to that and, and fleshing it out. So I don't know. I was a little bit higher on the record than you and Lauren were to begin with. And I think as I've had a chance to absorb some of the things we discussed, some of the things that people have said to us since, and just listening to the record, I, it's it's worthy. I mean, it. I don't know. I mean, the people who just want to take shots at this record, I, I don't really get it. Uh, if you don't want to listen to it, that I totally understand. But I think it does have artistic merit in the context that he placed it. Oh, I, I definitely agree with you. Anything that Bruce is excited about, anything that he put his he, he thought was worth recording, worth doing, and then is excited about, I, I want to hear. And th these are songs that he's excited about. And apparently he has another another album coming. So I'm looking forward to that one as well. It's just but yeah, I and there are complaints to be made, or there are valid criticisms of the record. For the the biggest one being the Lauren calling it antiseptic and me calling it kind of sterile. But other than that, you know, these are these are some strong songs that that he's excited about doing. I think that's the main takeaway. It's interesting because when Ron was on with Tom Cunningham, and it, it was a brief interview, but he did mention that Bruce actually told him he wanted him to create the tracks pretty much identical to the originals. And the only thing that they really changed, he said he would actually play the drums to the original track to get the drum track down. And then he built it out from there. And the only thing that changed, sometimes Bruce would come in and the song wasn't in his key. So then Ron would go back, he said, and re-record the song but in the right key for Bruce to sing it. And it, it just appears that part of Bruce's goal with this project was to duplicate the originals. Now, again, that's, you can debate artistically whether you like that or not, but it was not an accident. This is what they set out to do. Okay. And that totally makes sense. And, and E Street Radio actually has a special where they play the original song and then Bruce's version. And, and they're all pretty much identical. They're back to back. It's almost redundant, but it's great that that Bruce was excited enough about these songs. He loves these songs, obviously, and and I think in that way he he did what he wanted to do. And people can like it or people cannot like it, but it's definitely worthy of a release. And let's put in a plug for our friends at Backstreets. They put together a nice. Lot, separate liner notes actually for, for this album written by John Howie Jr. where he went and he researched and he's also a big fan of this music but he researched these songs and got details on the artists who did them and it's just an amazing background on these songs that obviously you and I were, were not aware of so I think uh, it's worth the order from them especially if uh, if you've just been streaming it. 
that sounds really cool. And I, I think that would be very helpful. In a way, it's a little surprising that Bruce didn't put out some accompanying material with it to give people some more context, but maybe he wants the music to speak for itself. I'm kind of surprised too, that he wouldn't come out and maybe write a paragraph about, about each song, but but Backstreet's, again, that does Bruce's job for him. So it's definitely worth a worth an order if you haven't gotten the album yet. I have not yet gotten the vinyl. I'm going to pick that up this weekend. I didn't get a chance. And I am interested to see all of the musical liner notes and, and everything that's going to be in there now. Ron did mention he played all the instruments, as we know. Uh, Bruce did add some lead guitar on certain tracks and I think also played a little bit of keyboard. Yes, that is all true. So it's not wasn't entirely all Ron, but uh, pretty damn close. Well, he created the tracks that allowed them to record. What <laughs> what was layered on over that was then fleshed out. But yeah, yeah th- 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 this project would not exist without Ron. That is certainly true. And I, I love the bass line on Only the Strong Survive. And I think there are several songs where the bass is so prominent. And I, and I just love the sound of it. We talked about this in the first episode of the show when we talked about Western stars. The faith and trust that Bruce has put into Ron really is remarkable. And he, Ron sounded quite excited about it. Tom Cunningham read Bruce's quote that he had said about Ron calling him a genius. And Ron was like, let me tell you something. The only genius in that room is, <laughs> is Bruce. Oh, wow. But, but, but. But Ron has the talent. He he can play every instrument apparently. So, and and play and play them well. It's not like he's a guitarist who can play drums. He sounds like he's a guitarist and a drummer and a bassist and a, and a keyboardist. So, and he's basically moved into the farm, or at least that was that was my interpretation of it from the Rolling li- Stone interview. He lived on the farm during the recording of this. That was what was going on during lockdown. He also spoke very highly of Patty's upcoming record which apparently was being recorded concurrently with the only the strong survive material. Oh, the other thing I should point out that Ron said, confirming stuff that we talked about, he said the number may be close to a hundred in terms songs. of the total songs that they did during those sessions. Oh, wow. And I, I wonder if they're all soul. He uh, said they're not. Okay. All right. Cause see, I would love to hear him do, I think I said this before, hear him do, uh, album of covers of Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley and and some of those Jerry Lee Lewis, some of those guys, the Rockabilly era. But you know, I guess it sounds like the next covers uh, record yeah. is a continuation of the soul theme. That is what it sounds like from both Ron and Bruce. The first record that they discarded apparently was not soul. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right, yeah, I obviously did not listen to the interview, and that's that's surprising. I thought, oh yeah, he did say Bruce did say that they they scra- they threw it away, and then like, he found his his point or what he wanted to do his vo- his own voice in, in the soul material. I, I think we've pretty much said everything we have to say about only the strong survive. I'm going to continue to absorb it a little bit more. It's a lot different for us, of course, than a regular Springsteen album because when he writes stuff we're trying to place it in the context of his broader career. And while we did that, I think with Lauren a little bit on this record last week, clearly the Springsteen written material is different. And we, we were honest that we're certainly not soul music mavens. So we didn't want to step outside our lane. And that, and that was why we brought Lauren in. And again, we appreciate her joining us because I thought it was a fantastic conversation. And, and there was a lot of stuff that really I wound up thinking about when we were done talking to her. Oh, absolutely. I'm the same way. I'm going to keep listening. I'm not throwing this get, throwing this out of my player anytime soon. I'm going to keep listening, alternate it with whatever the, the new archive release is next month and keep listening. And I'm sure if when he does stuff on the tour, I'm going to be really into it and it'll give me more appreciation for the for the studio cut. Yeah, I really want to have the conversation, but we're going to hold it until we do the tour preview <laughs> because the manner in which he's going to fit everything into the show, I'm curious to hear what you're going to guess on that. I don't even know what I'm going to guess on that yet, but this is really going to be a fascinating question because he's got to get letter to you in. I think that's definite. Maybe the one song from Western Stars, a couple of songs here. And he did say he was looking to play just about three hours every show. So that's a little bit longer than I thought. And 
it can't come soon enough, as we've said before, and I'm really going to be looking forward to our tour preview because that's going to put us right on the cusp of finally the E Street Band returning. Yeah, we're going to be really looking forward to that as uh, late January comes around and February 1st ends up being just around the corner. It's going to be, we're going to be downright giddy at that point. So, all right, I'm going to wrap it up. We've got some exciting episodes coming up. We've already started to map them out. In January, we're also going to have a 50th anniversary look at greetings and the tour preview. We've got presumably two archives coming up in December. Lots of stuff happening, and we're going to cover it all. So with that, I'm going to do our little spiel. None But The Brave is produced by Bullmark and Entertainment and presented by Evergreen Podcasts. On Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. On the web, we're at NoneButTheBravePodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.